find the book of Acts chapter 26 with me this morning, the book of Acts in the 26th chapter. I enjoyed that song. Acts chapter number 26. I'm going to, um, I'm going to begin reading in the very middle of a story, but I'm going to back up here in a minute and catch you up with a little bit of the background, but for sake of time, Acts chapter 26 and verse 24. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king, that's Agrippa, knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I'm persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. If you're familiar with the book of Acts and you know that the last half of the book of Acts takes up the story of the missionary travels of the apostle Paul. Peter is the main character in the first 10 chapters. And then chapters 11 through chapter uh, 28, the last chapter is all taken up with the travels of the apostle Paul. He is converted on the Damascus road. He is called to preach and confirmed by Ananias. He uh, is taken under the tutelage of Barnabas, ends up in Antioch with Silas. And from chapter 13 to the end of the book, the story is how Paul and his companions traveled and took the gospel to lands far and wide. In Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul has been called to stand before two politicians, Festus and Agrippa, to give an account of himself concerning some controversy between him and Jews that has come up in Jerusalem. But more than Paul being on trial, it is actually Christianity that is being scrutinized. These two men are going to pass judgment on Paul. And by extension, they're going to pass judgment on Christianity. Their judgment um, is common to how most men judge Christianity even today. You know, if you claim to be a Christian, then everybody who knows you and doesn't know Christ will form an opinion on Christ based on their opinion of you. They may not know one thing about Bible Christianity, but they're going to judge it by judging your life. The courtroom is their mind. Your life is the evidence and their opinion is the verdict. It is the final say as to whether all of these things that we believe, whether they are true or false. The day that you got saved and publicly ascribed to the doctrines and the practices of Christianity, you took the stand as a character witness for Christ. And this world is watching your life. They will render a verdict based on the credibility 
of your testimony and that may be the only evidence they ever consider. They may never read the Bible, but you are the Bible that they read. There's people, there are people who have been burned by religion so many times that they're not about to jump on another one just because you say it's gonna solve all of their problems. What they want to know, is this even real? Does it live up to all of the claims that we have for our faith? And they make that judgment not by studying the Bible, but by studying you. If you get saved, you fall back into sin or back to your old life. The world doesn't hate you for it, but they will scorn you for it. So Paul is standing before two men and they have questioned him about his faith. It's not a formal trial. It's an informal inquiry by two politicians questioning the faith of an old preacher. And they're not concerned with Paul's innocence or guilt about the charges that we'll talk about in just a minute, but they are, they're, they're curious about the validity of Paul's faith. Now, the story actually begins all the way back to Acts chapter 20. Paul has come to the end of his third missionary journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the annual feast of Pentecost. He has spent the larger part of three years in Ephesus building a great ministry there. But now he has his sight set on Jerusalem. If you read Acts 20 and 21, it reads like a travel log. He passes through a lot of cities, doesn't stay and preach because he's intent to get to Jerusalem. Now, I'll save this discussion for another time. I personally believe that Paul should not have gone to Jerusalem. In fact, I even say that Paul probably stepped out of the will of God by going to Jerusalem at this time. And again, it's discussion for another matter. But whether he was right or wrong, nothing but trouble awaited him when he got there. When he arrived, the city is full of Jews from all over the world there to celebrate Pentecost. Paul presents himself to the disciples in the church at Jerusalem, and he reports on how God has been saving Gentiles all over Asia and Europe. And the visit starts out well enough, but it gets real ugly really, really quick. Here's the reason why. Everywhere that Paul went, the Jews fought him. All of the riots, all of the getting run out of town, all the persecutions were mostly instigated by Jewish opposition. Well, all of those Jews are now in Jerusalem and it is rumored that their most public enemy number one, Paul, is coming to town. The brethren in the church are concerned that, 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 that having Paul there may incite a riot. So here's what the brethren in Jerusalem do. They offer a compromise. Paul has preached a salvation by grace works excluded message all over the world, but would he consider toning it down just for this one week while they all celebrate Pentecost together? In fact, come back if you would to chapter 20, and I'll run the history quickly to get to the message, but look in Acts 20 and verse number 21. Acts chapter 20, and I think chapter, Acts chapter 21 and verse 21, Acts 21, verse 21, here's what they say. They say, they are informed of thee that when thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs, what is it therefore 
the multitude must needs come together for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their head, and all may know that those things, and watch this, all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such things, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So, so here's what they said, Paul. The rumor is that you have been out preaching that men don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. They don't have to go through all of those customs. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that rumor true? It's not a trick question. It is absolutely true. That's exactly what he has been preaching. All right, now, come on, help me out just a little bit, all right? This is preaching time. You're Bible reader, so you can stay with us, all right? It's absolutely true. He has been preaching that you don't have to keep the law, all right? That's been done away by the cross, all right? But, but here's what they ask him to do. Would you go into the temple with four men that have taken a vow, and would you go in there and make a vow with them? It's going to involve shaking your head. It's going to involve a sacrifice that way. So the Jews that are here, that were here, that all these things have been said about you are nothing. Do you see what they're asking him to do? We're needing you just this week, Paul, if you'll just tone down this whole grace, no law stuff, if we can just get you to tone it down, even go in there and make a vow, and that way the Jews don't get upset. So Paul does that very thing. In order to prevent a riot, he goes into the temple, shaves his head, makes a vow, there's a sacrifice, goes through the whole motions. And by the way, this is the very thing that he tangled with Peter over. You're one thing to the Gentiles and you're another thing to the Jews. Well, did it work? Absolutely not. It blew up in his face is what happened. He goes into the temple, somebody recognizes him. And then they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which would be a huge no-no. And, and, and now, now they are in full riot mode. The very thing that he has sought to avoid, now there is a mob in a panic and a mob grabs Paul. They are about to kill him. And then the centurion, the Roman centurion that's in charge of keeping the peace in Jerusalem, he hears about all the commotion. He grabs some soldiers, they rush into the crowd and they grab Paul and whisk him away to safety for right now. We're not gonna let you murder him with a mob until we find out what's happening. He has no idea who Paul is. He has no idea what has happened, but Paul is placed under arrest. He's under custody more for his safety than anything else. And the centurion wants to get to the bottom of this tumult, so he calls the Jewish Sanhedrin and he calls Paul to try to sort it out altogether. Now, now here's what the Sanhedrin do. They accuse Paul of sedition, which would be a very serious crime against the Roman Empire. That could get you get, get killed and that's exactly what they wanted. The centurion doesn't know what to do. So what he does is he sends Paul under heavy guard to Caesarea. That would be the Roman garrison of Judea, sends him to Caesarea 
And this is also where Felix, the governor, lives. So I'm going to pass it down to Felix and I'm going to let him decide what to do with this. For the next two years, Paul sits in a jail cell in Caesarea under the care of Felix, the governor, waiting for a trial or to be transferred, uh, transferred to Rome. Now, Felix, I'm giving you the background because I'm get to the message. Felix was the governor, but he was a notoriously wicked man. So only two years later, after his governor, Rome recalls him back to Rome and sends another man to replace him, and his name is Festus. Look at chapter 24. Look at the last verse. Chapter 24, verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Now, when Festus was coming to the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So now we have Festus. He's the new governor, and he's got this problem with Paul on his hands. What do I do with him? So three days, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the Sanhedrin, and, the, and after th two years, they still want to have him killed. And Festus is, is too wise to their ways, and, and, and he decides, I'm going to send Paul to Rome so he can appeal to Caesar. Then here's what happens. King Agrippa, king of Judah, he comes to pay a diplomatic visit to Festus. So now I've got Festus, the governor, I've got King Agrippa, and they're talking, and Festus brings up the case of Paul to Agrippa. And Agrippa says, you know, I've heard about him. I, I've heard about this fella, and, and why are the Jews so mad at him? What is it possibly that he could be preaching that's got them wanting to kill him? I wouldn't mind to hear about Paul myself. And Festus says, well, I can arrange that. And so now we get to chapter 26. Festus brings Paul in to, to, to Agrippa and Paul is given the chance to speak. The Jewish Sanhedrin is not there. It is not a trial. It is two politicians with their court of dignitaries. Let's hear what you have to say. Now, that would be a wonderful time to give a defense, to defend yourself. The charge is not true. I should not be in jail. This is not, but Paul doesn't do that. You'll have to read chapter 26. Here's what he does. He gives a testimony. He talks to them about how he got saved on the Damascus Road, how he was called to preach, made an apostle to the Gentiles, and he just puts in there the death barrel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he makes it all about Jesus. So here's these two politicians listening to the apostle Paul, and, and he's just preaching to them is what he's doing. And Christianity, catch this, is presented in the testimony and the life of the apostle Paul. And these men are going to make an, a decision about the claims of Christianity, but they're going to do it based upon their belief of the Apostle Paul. There's no verdict made for Paul as to whether he is guilty or innocent. He was not released. He was not sentenced. That is not what it is about. The question in their mind is what about all of these claims of Christianity? It is his faith that is on trial. In fact, in fact, I, I believe both men already knew that Paul was not guilty of what he'd been charged with. That trial's already been held. But is there any question, is there any 
validity to what he claims. Is there any truth to Christianity? And so out of his conversation that I read to you, Festus and Agrippa listened to Paul. They've examined his life and based on his testimony, they make a verdict on Christianity. And I wanna tell you this morning that Christianity is on trial. And it has been on trial since Christ was here. And it's on trial today. Your neighbor has an opinion. He's made a decision about Christianity. Your family has made a decision in their mind whether Christianity is true or not. They may have never read a verse in the Bible. They may have never sat in a church. They may not could tell you the gospel story, but in their mind, in their mind, they have sat on a jury and they've passed a verdict whether this is true or not, and they do it based upon your life. Three verdicts here, I'll give it to you quickly. First of all, Festus. Festus's verdict of Christianity is that Christianity is insanity. Look at it, chapter 26, and look at verse 24. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Now, Festus is a Roman governor that knows nothing about Christianity. If I had to guess, he was probably involved in the emperor worship that was so big in the Roman Empire. In fact, in the chapter before, he confessed his own ignorance and his disdain for Christianity. He knows nothing about Christianity. The most powerful man regards religion with contempt. It is unworthy of the attention of a great man like himself. And he listens as Paul gives his testimony and his darkened mind turns away from the truth. And finally, he's heard enough. I don't want to hear any more of this foolishness. So he interrupts Paul and says, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning hath made thee mad. Here's what he does. He insults the intelligence of Paul and says this is insanity. You would have to be crazy to believe what you're saying. Because here's what Festus heard. He heard that Paul had grown up with all of these privileges, but he gave it all up to be a preacher because he believed that a man had died on a cross and had risen from the grave three days later and then had met him by the side of the road one day. That's what he heard. And to him, that was the craziest thing he'd ever heard in his life. You got to be certifiably a nutcase to believe what you're saying. And Festus, Festus, by the way, revealed his own ignorance by attacking something that he didn't understand. To him, if it's beyond his reasoning, then it doesn't make sense at all. Here's his verdict. Christianity is insanity. Now we live in the Bible Belt. There's more churches in Santa Rosa County than you can count. Everybody's had their door knocked on a dozen times and they don't want to knock on again. But I'm going to tell you something. That Festus is alive and well in Milton, Florida. That there, there are people all around us who have a disdain for what we believe in. They are the, of the opinion that we are crazy for what we believe and how we live. 
They live as if the only care in the world is a physical concern. There's nothing to gain but possessions and no world to live for except this world. And they think you are saying, and by the way, the closer you get to Jesus and the closer you get to true New Testament, Bible, Christianity, the more crazy they're going to think you are. It's insanity is what it is. You, you, you just think for a minute how weird I am to this world. I, I am weird to this world. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't listen to the world's music and I, I don't go to movies and I don't smoke, I don't chip, chew, I don't dip, I don't, I don't drink, I don't hang out in bars and I don't go dancing and I'm faithful to my wife and I go to church three times a week and I tithe and I don't give them missions. Somebody, somebody, I wish I had a Bible reader right now. That's what I wish, all right? I, I do not support the homosexual agenda and the LGBTQRP, whatever it is, and, 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 and I don't support abortion, and I don't support gambling, and I don't support public school. I don't idolize the heroes of the world. I don't know who won last year's Emmy or last year's Grammy, and, and, and I, don't know the, I don't know the lyrics to one single Taylor Swift song, and I pray over my meals in public, and I believe you ought to dress modestly and decent. I'm telling you, I'm weird. I, I believe I believe in the virgin birth and I believe in the bodily resurrection. I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. I believe in a physical return of Christ. I believe in a burning hell and they think that I am insane. They're the ones getting drunk. They're the ones hung out on drugs. They're the ones getting abortions and divorces and, and living like hell and I'm the crazy one. The reason why is because of their ignorance of Christianity coupled with their hatred and their disdain for God and for Jesus Christ. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us which are saved. It is the power of Christ. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he discern them because they are spiritually discerned. There is a world that like Festus, they are completely ignorant of the true things of God and, they, and, and, and the only time that they ever speak of religion is to ridicule it and, and the majority of the people around you will never frequent a house of worship except on a wedding or, or a funeral and the majority of people that live around you will never call out to God except in times of a crisis or desperation and they'll never give a thought to a life beyond this one until they're on their deathbed and, and they have lived as a fool and they call you crazy. Christianity is insanity. But can I just tell you that when the world judges you a fool, consider yourself in good company because they did the same to Jesus Christ. The critics of Christ said that he was beside himself. They said that he had a devil. They accused the apostles of being drunk when they were just filled with the Holy Spirit. They just had a good time in church and they said that you're drunk. So, so when they call you crazy, when they call you names, when they stick their tongue at you, when they revile you and persecute you, consider yourself in some good company. Festus, Christianity, you gotta be crazy to believe that. It's insanity. But then we got Agrippa in the story. And Agrippa's verdict, he hears the same testimony. And Agrippa's verdict is that Christianity is inconvenient. Now, now, this group is Herod Agrippa II, and, and he's the last of the Herodian dynasty. You hear about them all in, in the Gospels. 
It was his grandfather that ordered the murdering of the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. That was, that was his granddaddy. His uncle was the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. His father, Agrippa the one, is the Herod that, that had, that had uh, James killed and almost tried to kill Peter in the book of Acts. So, so, so this is his, his family line. When Agrippa came to visit Festus, the Bible says he was accompanied by a woman named Bernice. Bernice was the Jezebel of the New Testament. Bernice, by the way, was the um, sister of Drusilla. That was Felix, the first governor. That was his wife. And they were in a sexual relationship. She had a marriage to her uncle. That ended. Her third marriage was to, to the king of Sicily. Uh, and then she left him to be the mistress of Titus, who was the Roman general that destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. This is, this is the nice little lady, Bernice, that accompanies Agrippa. And when Agrippa comes to visit Festus, then, then, then Festus sees this as an opportunity to get a second opinion on Paul because Agrippa would be more familiar with Roman customs. He had connections to Rome. So, so let's see what Agrippa says about this. And so Agrippa hears the story of Paul's trials over the last two years and, and Agrippa is intrigued. What could be so dangerous about a preacher? I mean, if all he is doing is preaching, then why is the whole city, why are these Jews wanting to have him killed? I would love to hear from this man myself. And so Paul's brought in and Agrippa sits there and he listens to the testimony. And Felix, he's quick to rush to judgment. Paul, you're insane. And I'm not listening anymore to this. There's nothing to Christianity. You are a madman. You gotta be crazy to live like you live. But, but Agrippa is different because the message has a different effect on him. Verse 27, Paul looks directly at him. It says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. He heard, he was moved, but he wouldn't go all the way in. His spirit was moved within him. His conscience convicted him. There is a ring of truth to what Paul has said, but he doesn't have the courage to believe. He's not far from the kingdom of God, but he's not close enough. He doesn't condemn Paul, he doesn't ridicule Christianity, but he doesn't take hold of it and receive it into his heart. And here's what he said, almost thou persuadest me, that word persuade, found three times in your Bible, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. As far as we know, King Agrippa is hearing the gospel for the first time and he is moved by it. And some say that he was being sarcastic. I think that he was actually being sincere. And I think that Paul felt it because five times Five times in this address, he addresses Agrippa by name. Five times he looks at Agrippa and calls him by name. I mean, he zones in on him. There's a lot of men in that room that day, but I think Paul could sense that there was something going on in Agrippa's heart. He zeroed in on him, Agrippa and Agrippa and Agrippa. And Agrippa listened to Paul and he's so close to believing, but he is so far away. And I think one of the greatest tragedies in all of life is for a person to die almost saved. I mean, to hear the word of God faithfully preached, to tremble under Holy Spirit conviction and to walk away and never come back. 
Do you know the world's full of men just like Agrippa? Just like Agrippa. They make no objections to the gospel. They don't try to refute the gospel. They, they don't try to say that it's, it's crazy. But here's what they want. They want the blessings of Christ without the demands of Christ. Why is he almost persuaded? Why, why, why don't you just, why don't, so you know, there'll be people that we've witnessed to that you know they're lost and they know they're lost and we know they're lost and the gospel is preached and the gospel is preached. And here's what I say, man, they're almost saved. Almost saved. When are you gonna drop your religion? When are you gonna say that your morality is not gonna get it done for you? When are you gonna realize that whatever you're holding on to is gonna do nothing but send you to a devil's hell so close, so close but so far away? Why, 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 why won't Agrippa get saved? I, I wonder, I wonder if it is the love of sin that's keeping Agrippa from taking that step. He's a wicked man. He is morally bankrupt. He can look at Paul and the other Christians and know that if I get saved, my life is going to change. He has a sin problem and his love of sin keeps him from getting saved. Could it be the fear of man that keeps Agrippa from getting saved? Festus, Festus has just looked at Paul and said, you're crazy. Agrippa, what do you think? And for Agrippa to go against Festus, he doesn't have the courage. If I, if I say I believe it, then Festus is gonna think I'm a madman. I can lose my position. I, it's, it's, I've got too much to lose. In fact, it could be the cost of commitment. It could be what kept him from getting saved was Paul. He's looking at a man in chains. He's looking at a man that's probably getting ready to lose his life, and he did. He's looking at a man that has, it has cost him much to live for Jesus and Agrippa is saying, I'm not willing to pay that cost. And he stands at the threshold of salvation and he turns away. And as far as I know, this is the last opportunity he ever had to accept Christ. I never read whether the gospel was ever preached to him again. I never read of the Holy Spirit ever convicting him of sin again. This is the last preacher to ever preach to him. It is the last message that he ever heard. It is the last invitation that was ever given for Agrippa. It's the final call. It's the final appeal to go out to save your soul. It is the last chance that he has of getting saved. Heaven's most gifted preacher stands before Agrippa. He says, would you come? And to heaven's most gifted preacher, Agrippa says, almost. So here's what he does. He passes judgment. And here's his judgment. Christianity is inconvenient. It'll cost me too much. Inconvenient season. I'm going to look for another way. That could be you. you. You could be sitting here this morning and you have no argument with the truth of the gospel. You don't have any verses to refute Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And you also know in your heart you're lost. And you're on your way to hell. You, 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 you have, you've lied to others. You've lied to yourself. You have lied to God. But in the deepest recesses of your heart, you know that if you to die today, that your religion is not going to get you to the pearly gates. 
But you also know you're going to have to give up your sinning in order to get saved. You have to humble yourself to get saved and the love of the world and the love of sin and the, somebody ought to help me. The love of self has kept you from trusting Christ. You are almost, you can't condemn Christianity, but you haven't embraced it either. It's inconvenient, inconvenient. Harry Ironside, great preacher, great author, didn't get saved at an early age. His mama prayed for him as a teenage, teenage boy. And every time she'd witness to him, Harry Ironside would say, Mama, I'd like to get saved. All my friends will laugh at me if I do. His mama's very wise. And she said, Harry, your friends can laugh you into hell, but they cannot laugh you out of hell. You better not base your eternal destiny based upon somebody else's. I think if we could visit the pits of hell this morning, there's a man sitting there on a throne of fire and he hears what he's chanting. I have betrayed innocent blood. I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas has betrayed the sinless son of God. If we could visit the pits of hell this morning, we'd find a man washing his hands in a bowl of brimstone saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, Pilate had the chance to know the Savior, but condemned him to die. If we could visit the pits of hell this morning, there's a man shouting, when I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. Feed us the governor. He's too busy to consider the gospel. If we could visit the pits of hell, there's a man screaming, running through the quarters of hell, screaming almost, 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 almost. He never found out what it was to have his sins forgiven. He never knew what the peace of God was like. Never had the assurance that eternal life was his almost, almost, but not close enough. Festus, Christianity is insanity. Agrippa, Christianity is inconvenient. There's a third testimony, it's Paul. Christianity is imperative. Look at verse 29. Paul said, now catch the irony of this. I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. What a paradox. Here is a man in chains and here is a man in power. And the one in chains is in the more desirable state. Here is a man who has every material possession he could desire. And here is a man who has nothing but the clothes on his back. And the man who has nothing is in a more desirable state than the man who has everything. Here is a man who is surrounded by friends and admirers. And here is a man who stands alone. And the man who stands alone is in a more desirable state than the man who has all the friends and the admirers. At least that's how Paul saw it. He looks at a king and a governor and he says, I wish he was like me. Not almost, but altogether right. in every way. Right. You would be much better off <laughs> if you were more like me. Yes, you, you would think, you would think that he felt like that Christ and knowing Christ was the most important thing in life. I mean, it sounds like to me, just that one verse, it sounds like to me that he thought it was a greater thing to be a preacher of the gospel than be the king of Judea or the emperor of Rome. He has been languishing in jail for two years 
on trumped up charges, but he is so thoroughly convinced that he is right and there was no hesitation in his voice and there is no doubt in his soul. It is the language of a man who, has, who knows what he believes and he is fully persuaded of what he believes that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, heaven or hell, the highest death any other creature can separate him from the love of God. <laughs> Here is a man, I'll just amen myself if I have to. Here is a man who has no questions about the merits of the claims of Christ. He has no doubts about the veracity of the word of God. He has no fear of his future and there is no shame in preaching the gospel. <laughs> he is so convinced of the truth that he is completely sold out to it. Not a distant follower, not a secret disciple of Christ. He had served the devil. He is not about to let the devil have more of his time and energy in life than God does. D.O. Moody, great evangelist, used of God, both England and America. And there was a statement that gripped D.O. Moody's heart and it became a famous statement. It wasn't he that said it, but he heard a man say it in a meeting and it became his motto. The saying was, the world is yet to see what God can do with one man fully committed to him. That's the statement. I'd like to disagree with the statement. I understand what the statement says, but I think the world has seen a man fully committed to God. I think the world has seen a man who has so sold out his life that he is willing to die for it. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. It's not a game I'm playing. It's not a little bit of religion that I take up on Sunday for an hour or two. It's, it's not just a thing I do on the weekends. I'm not spiritual on Sunday and carnal on Monday. No, that, that, that's not me. It is imperative that I be a Christian. So what is your verdict this morning? You've heard truth, you know the gospel. You've heard preaching all of your life. So what are you gonna do with it? You see, you get to judge for yourself and you stand with one of these men and come to the piano. And maybe it could be that you think that Christianity is insanity. I don't believe the Bible is true. I think Jesus Christ is just another historical figure. The demands are unreasonable. There's no need for me to give my life to this. Some men sit in judgment. They're too smart. They're too sophisticated. They're too worldly minded to accept anything the Bible says. Your unbelief makes you a mocker of truth and a scorner of God. That could be you this morning. Maybe you're a gripper and you believe. But it's too inconvenient. Because truth be told, you've got a whole lot of sin to be given up in order to trust Christ. You're not really sure you want the demands of Christ on your life. You want to take the parts that you want and you want to leave the rest and you want to be saved on your terms. And you have felt conviction in your heart. There's been a voice in your heart, the Holy Spirit, that has told you this is true and you need it desperately. Almost. Almost. But would you stand with Paul and say Christianity is imperative. I have no life without Christ. I have no life outside of Christ. 
How to have a church life and a secular life, it is all in him. And since I have been saved, I want nothing more than to know Christ even more. And I want him to change me and to mold me and fashion me into his image. And I want to know holy living and I want to be his disciple. Whatever he asks of me, that's what I want. I don't want to sin. I don't want to look like this world. I don't want to dress like this world. I don't want to follow after the fashions of this world. I want to be a Christian in every way. And I don't fear the ridicule. And I'm willing to drink the cup and pay the price. I, I want 100% all of the way to be a follower of Christ. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed. Where do you stand this morning? Where do you stand? Several people come to the altar. God speaks to your heart. I encourage you to step out now. I wonder how many of you can say, Preacher, I know I'm saved. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know I'm saved. Would you slip your hand up all over the building? Thank you so much. Hands all over the building, all over the building. Thank you so much. I'm the only person looking. I'd love to pray for you if you're not saved. Somebody here this morning, would you just slip your hand up quietly? Preacher, if I was to die today, I do not know that heaven is my home. I wouldn't want to face God in the shape I'm in right now. Would you just pray for me? Not going to come get you, not going to embarrass you, not going to drag you down. I'm going to pray for you, is all I'm going to do. Would you slip your hand up, preacher, pray for me? Not saved, don't know Christ. Anybody? Would you slip your hand up? Let me pray for you. Anybody? Almost. So close. But almost will send you to hell is what I'll do. Anybody? Are you all the way in? Fully? fully committed are the things in your life that you've held on to that's not honoring to Christ this be a good service just walk this aisle and say Lord this doesn't look Christ like to me I'm going to give it to you would you come Holy Spirit of God speak to our hearts this morning I feel in my spirit that there's lost people in this room and I don't know who they are only you do but I pray the Holy Spirit convicts them even now even now had one saved last week. Love to see somebody get saved this week. Oh, the Spirit of God, do the work that we cannot do. Help those of us who are saved to examine our life. Let everything about me be Christ-like. Speak to us this morning, I pray.